for November 12th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 228. That's some King's Quest II level detective work. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink Skyfall, the latest installment in the Home Alone franchise. With me <laughs> is a panel and panel uh, in honor of the Home Alone-like uh, destruction visited upon uh, Javier Bardem and his band of thugs. What location from your childhood would you like to use would would be best to stage uh, an ambush if you were if Javier Bardem if a a, a freakishly blonde uh, Javier Bardem were after you uh, with a band of of thugs coming in on a helicopter uh, where would you meet them and prepare uh, to ambush them? Drink. It's Peter Fenzel. <laughs> All right, so my basketball hoop was next to my driveway at my old childhood home. It was not at the garage where you could sort of shoot long ways. It was set sideways to the driveway so you could shoot a lot of baseline shots and not use the backboard very much. And whenever you missed, the ball would bounce on the grass and would go underneath this sort of half-grown pine tree. I kind of expanded uh, out over this mulched area where we would sometimes try to go flowers. And I would have to chase the ball down underneath this, this sort of like bushy pine tree shrubbery thing, which was just freaking impenetrable. Like just really, really difficult to get through. Uh, and I know that sort of like rescuing the ball, it's the sort of thing where you kind of have to lead with your foot and like duck your foot under, under the branches and try to nick the top of the ball, kind of roll the ball out because you can't go in there. Um, I feel like if I were just to load that place up with a couple, a couple can, some canned goods and my my dad's old hunting Uzi, then uh, I think Javier Bardem would have a real tough problem uh, getting in, especially if, uh, <laughs> especially if his goal was then to like play twenty one afterwards, which would then be delayed by like a solid fifteen minutes as he tried to retrieve. <laughs> was your uh, was your dad much of a hunter there in the the, the Pine Barrens of New Jersey? <laughs> the Pine Barrens? Yeah. I mean, maybe if he was in the Pine Barrens, maybe he was hunting. I don't no, know. he was. He only he hunted the most dangerous game, <laughs> which was uh, caffeine-free diet Pepsi. He had lots of that at the house. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love my dad. So yeah, it's, uh... <laughs> no, he, he hunted. We went skeet shooting once when I was uh, with Boy Scouts, but we never actually hunted actual live game unless there's a horrible, <laughs> horrible secret that's being kept from the skeet shooting community, which, right. to my knowledge, is not the case. Um, Mr. Fenzel, I, I grew up on this island where it was overrun by horses, and the goal was to get down to the last two horses, and they would play this basketball game where they spelled their names out. With the coconut for a <laughs> I love it. I say coconut. <laughs> they eat the lime and the coconut. They drink the coconut. <laughs> They put they put it in. They put the lime in the coconut. Oh, I was uh, no. What, where I was going to go was oh, skeet shoot, mother f. Oh, skeet shoot, skeet, skeet shoot. They put the lime in the coconut in the barrel. They make them eat each other. Put the lime in the coconut in the barrel, and they make them eat them. Ah, uh, it's good stuff. I was going to make a he hunts the most dangerous game skeet joke, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> my dad were talking about cheese. 
uh, who is the um, uh, yeah. Uh, so that's that's interesting. You, you know, my mother was a, a, a hunter much after your father's ilk, but for tab. Not, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of red cans of tab with that sort of old style logo type uh, on it. Right. Like that's a, a really, um, you know, I don't know, uh, thing from my childhood. Not that my answer is, you know, a can of tab or a fortress made out of cans of tab. We'll get to my answer. That would uh, be a pretty good place. I'm just going to say that if you want to use it, you can use it, even though you've already said it. But we'll wait for your turn to find out the answer. Okay. Well, um, all right. If it seems like I'm vamping, I am. And the reason will become clear in a minute. But despite my best best efforts, I have been uh, uh, thwarted. So we're going to move right on to John. Going to move right on to John Parrish. I thought that that if I vamped enough, someone might slot in between Fenzel and Parrish. But here... uh, And yet here we are. So I'm just going to go. All right. So... (laughs) My preferred ambush spot would be the playground behind my elementary school, Warren Elementary in Cockeysville, Maryland. Just because for the longest time, and I don't know if they fixed it since, but it was one of the few, I guess the term for it is unreconstructed playgrounds in, I believe, North America. So you know how over the last like 15 to 20 years, all children's playgrounds have replaced the mulch that they were on, that sort of weird rubberized turf, and all the wooden climbing structures with big foamy plastic ones and all the metal structures have been taken out entirely and replaced with rope and netting and various things. The one at Warren Elementary stayed hardcore like wood and iron and rusting protruding screws for the longest, for as far as I know, the longest time. So you could, you could definitely put an eye out on there, especially if it were in the dark and rainy, as it should be whenever you're confronting your arch nemesis. And if there were explosions going off in the background, then you could, you could trip over the rope ladder and, you know, hit your head pretty hard on the fake steering wheel that's like a pirate ship steering wheel, and then fall down the slide and tumble comically into, I don't know, a bed of nails or something. What is up with that steering wheel? Because, like, my playground had one, neighborhood playground had one as well. And, like, what, what is that for? I guess, I, I guess, as you say, like, pirate ship fantasy play, right? Yeah, because there, it's this giant, this giant, or these two sets of towers that are linked by a bridge or something. And I suppose from a certain uninformed perspective, it looks like a ship of some sort. So you have a bunch of kids fighting over who gets to be the captain, even though the person who steers the ship is never the captain. It's the helmsman. <laughs> and that's, you know, one of the less glamorous jobs. But who am I to correct the, you know, eight-year-old opinion of rum, sodomy, and the lash as the <laughs> to the British Navy. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I remember actually playing with those things when I was a kid, and it wasn't nearly that well thought out. Uh, you know, like before before we go through socialization and shame sets in and everything, we are all polymorphously wheel turny. You know, like if there's a wheel there, we turn it, and that's all there is to it. <laughs> Left. Right to the window. To exactly. The wall. Exactly. <laughs> skeet, skeet, get down, get to the chopper. Yeah. Uh, Jordan uh, Stokes, uh, where where are you going to um, where are you going to stage your ambush? Well, you know, I I've been giving this a lot of thought all through this. Um, like there was an old quarry in my town uh, that was vaguely militaristic, I guess, or at least bulletproof in some parts of it. Um, there was like some woods out back, back behind my house. Um, but eventually I came to this 
I think, very important conclusion, which is that if Javier Bardem and a bunch of thugs want to kill me, they're probably going to succeed. Like, I'm not a paramilitary expert or anything. (laughs) I fired a gun maybe twice and missed both things I fired at. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down to my old high school. And uh, there was this big foam pad that they used for the the pole vault that you would, like, fall in after you successfully pole vaulted. And everyone always used to like to climb on top of it and jump around. And they'd always yell at us and make us get off. So if I'm going to get killed by Javier Bardem, damn it, I'm going to jump up and down on the pole vault pad for a solid 20 minutes first. And there's my answer. <laughs> and it's harder to hit a moving target that's bouncing up and down. Oh well, yeah. Wait, so, so Jordan, like you're just taking like, advantage of this. You're just taking advantage of your impending death to cross things off your bucket list. One of which was jump up and down on the foam pad. Yes. <laughs> I feel like that's basically what James Bond does all the time, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> it's pretty close, it's like, right? I might as well go to Macaw and make out with this strange lady. Like, why not? You know, like yeah. I'm going to get killed by these guys anyway. They don't know why. Yeah, yeah but exactly. so you're saying, you're saying happen, that James, right? you're saying that James Bond's career consists of finding soft, pliable surfaces to bounce up and down against. <laughs> Yeah. And of Bouncing, course, what's going to happen stir. is like uh, Javier Bardem is going to accidentally shoot the pad during the crossfire, and I'm going to be like, "No, another one I couldn't save." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, wow, yeah, a lot, lot of ladies, a lot of ladies uh, going down in James Bond's. We're moving right along. <laughs> what is that? What out of alphabetical order? Because apparently, I didn't vamp long enough. Mark Lee. <laughs> Oh, I made it in time for the question. Shoot, I don't have an answer prepared. We're still, we're still oh, in the question. No, no, okay, okay, Mark. We'll pretend I, that. We'll, I, no, no, I'm no. delayed because not just because I, I caught a late, uh, a late showtime, but I also had some technological difficulties, um, and so I did what anyone should do when confronted by a uh, technological, more technologically advanced adversary, and just go to my old stone castle house in Scotland. Good. Yeah. So that's where that's where I'm right. podcasting from. Because that's where that's because <laughs> it has wired Ethernet instead of uh, you know Wi-Fi. Yeah, that and um and and an escape hatch. No, okay, I'm good. I, I I'll I'll enter and then we will we will come to your you know dilapidated Chinese island, uh in in just a second. Um late late into the movie once you know we're well into the second act <laughs> of the film. Uh, all right. So my answer is the the La Brea Tar Pits, which was a you know a, a, like a museum. It's a thing in Los Angeles, right? And there are tar pits um, for for a couple of reasons. One, I think my enemies could get stuck in the tar pits, and once um, they were, I could just set the tar pits on fire, and you know they'd all go up in smoke. And also, there are statues of dinosaurs uh, there. Um, How is it that nobody has set the tar pits on fire? already perhaps if the tarp is being set on fire is something that can happen yeah perhaps perhaps they are not flammable perhaps i should have wikipedia uh a little <laughs> more before before i said that but i i stand by uh my enemies um and my enemy my nemesis and his droogs getting stuck in the uh in the tarpits because dinosaurs got struck uh, got stuck in the tarpits and and surely um the the paramilitary band coming after me is less cool than dinosaurs. So if dinosaurs could not escape, uh, neither could uh, Blondie Bardem and his uh, his you know band of merry rebels. All right, we have arrived at the deserted, dilapidated island uh, 
you know, just off Macau, or maybe not just off because it, we, we have sailed through the night uh, to get here. And we meet our arch nemesis, Mark Lee. Uh, yes, I, and I have uh, exotic accent because I'm a Bond villain. <laughs> that was my terrible Javier Bardem impression. I'm sorry. Can we edit that out? No, who am I kidding? We don't edit this show. What you guys can't Continue. see is that Mark has been gradually getting closer for the entire time he's been on the podcast by like a very <laughs> slow, creeping zoom shot. That was a very, very cool shot. That I, I yeah. mean, that was fun. Oh, sorry, Mark. You go ahead. Oh, okay. So my answer to this question, um, uh, just because I've uh, been busy setting up and have had a lot of time thinking of something particularly clever, uh, I'm just going to go with my cherished place, my most cherished place from my childhood to stages ambush, which would be the minor league stadium uh, in the suburbs of Birmingham, Alabama, where I uh, spent many a summer afternoon uh, taking in a, 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 a ball game. Um, and the reason why I choose this place, not just because it's one of the few things that came to my mind from uh, from my childhood is because um, I, they, I have a distinct memory of one of the, the tchotchkes that they would, you know, the giveaways that they would give to people who would, who would show up at the game was a miniature wooden bat. Um, and so I would concoct some devious plan uh, to a low tech plan, of course, to uh, to batter Javier Bardem and his minions with these tiny little bats from a minor league baseball stadium. Uh, <laughs> maybe accompanied with, uh, with 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 small children as well. I, I, I really like where this is going. It's all very yeah, low tech, right? You'll beat them with small children. So you're essentially wielding Wheel, small bats. You're yeah. essentially staging the Ewoks battle in a Bond film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And then we I feel like the, the Ewoks. The Ewok solution could be applied to a wide variety of cinematic problems, like uh, like Wall Street. You could just have a bunch of Ewoks that just trip Gordon Gecko and then hit him with sticks. You could uh, Thelma and Louise. They could stop the car from going over the cliff. Although I'm not sure line. that's actually the problem. What? <laughs> the thin blue line. The thin blue line. Yep. The thin red line. The thin <laughs> yellow line. Uh, all of them. Wait, Which is one it? is the thin blue line? Which one is the thin blue line, Jordan? That's, that's the Errol Morris documentary about the the guy wrongfully imprisoned on death row and. Jump! 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 Anyway. Uh, the, the, I've just searched for the word flammable on the La Brea Tar Pits Wikipedia page and it does not appear um, I'm now searching for the word inflammable on the uh, La Brea Tar Pits <laughs> Wikipedia page uh, I have so some bad you, news. You keep, the word flammable keep... is contained within the word inflammable so, <laughs> if so the you word... keep on with that in the meantime the rest of us will talk about Skyfall yeah, not if I can help it <laughs> it's a Skyfall it's the name of a movie <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's start there, Pete. I mean, what did you think of that? What did you think of that song? I thought the title sequence was awesome. Uh-huh. Uh so if you want to take the song in isolation, like if I just sort of if if this were still a time and place where people listened to music on the radio for the purpose of enjoying it and discovering it, then sure, maybe it would be confusing because it's one of those uh rare songs that uh references events in a movie that you ha- may may not have seen yet. Uh, and not really in a very clear way, but uh, as part of the title sequence, I thought it was pretty cool. It was she has very she very richly uh, vocalized it right in that sort of languid, uh, you know, al- almost like the curve of a hip in vocal form, right? Is uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I thought it was great. Um, yeah, the the title animation itself was full of full of sexy, sexy danger as the 
title animations for Bond films all often are. One thing about it, which I noticed it had in common with Casino Royale, I forget whether Quantum of Solace was similar because I've only seen it the once, was this was one of the few title animations that had Daniel Craig's face uh, visibly appear. Because typically there's a Bond silhouette of some sort who's shooting or running or chopping. And that's been traditional for, I think, almost 50 years worth of Bond films. But in Quantum of Solace, the Bond silhouette eventually resolves and has very clearly Daniel Craig's face. And this one it did as well, which is an interesting, which is definitely a deviation from prior, uh, from prior Bond silhouettes in the title sequence. I think it probably points to a stylistic approach, right? Or like even, even more than stylistic, even a thematic approach to the film, um, which is so much about characterizing Bond. Right, mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily about origin storying him. It's sort of origin stories him, but like in terms of characterizing him, it's sort of so much of the pleasure of the movie, which I think I really, I really, really enjoyed. And we'll get to this later because I think some of you guys enjoyed it less than I did. But the chief pleasure I got out of it was was the characterization of Bond, which is such a tricky thing to do um, because you know he's it's. Uh, Oh, anyway, we can get into that in a, in a little bit, but I, I don't want to stop Jordan from responding because as the musicologist on the podcast, perhaps he has something about the song that is uh, worth including. Oh, no, not, not really. Uh, I, thought, I liked the song a lot. Um, so, yeah. So as a person who academically studies film music, thumbs up, like double plus good? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think definitely it's, it's very self-consciously retro, um, which is interesting because in, in a way, like... There's there's lots of things about the the opening title sequence in this one I think more so than in a lot of other Bond films you're like oh that's that's what that means you know like that that was the grave that says Bond on it that we saw in the opening credits and so on um, that was the sort of uh, throbbing red blood vessely heart thing that we saw in the opening credits um, and the fact that it goes back to classic Bond song. Uh, in this film, rather than the sort of more guitar-driven stuff that we've typically gotten over the past, I don't know, solid dozen or so films, um, is actually kind of a spoiler if you if you think about what the movie is setting up at the end of it, right? But yeah, that makes uh, yeah, that's cool because it is. I mean, even from beginning to end, right? There's there's a very heavy retro element, and then we sort of journey back to where Bond comes from. Just that it begins on top of a train. Right, which mm-hmm. is um, and I, maybe you guys are, are bigger into Bond than um, than I am. I saw it with with Josh, also from Overthinking It, and he mentioned that there might have been another Bond movie where they spend time on the rooftops of the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, um, which happens early on in this movie. I don't remember which one that would be. Does that ring a bell for anybody, or am I just thinking about Taken Two? Well, there have been <laughs> several. There have been several Bond movies in Istanbul. The most recent of which is The World Is Not Enough. Uh, that one has the the Bond villain. Uh, uh, why am I? He's been in the Danny Boyle movies. Uh, you know. Anyhow, that one has the Bond villain uh, threatening to blow up Istanbul by essentially slotting uh, nuclear control rods the wrong way into a nuclear submarine. Right, 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 right. Okay, so they probably had some Istanbul action on that one as well. Um, well, that's cool. Um, is, yeah, is, so- Istanbul or Constantinople? Well, it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Every Bond villain in Constantinople blows up Istanbul, not Constantinople. <laughs> Rather, it's been a long time gone since Constantinople. Okay. Why, okay. why, why did Constantinople get the works? That's classified. <laughs> yeah. For your eyes only. Thank you. I was wondering, Don't however, can I put a button on that? Um, 
So to talk a little, Pete, about your point about Bond and characterization, I'd say this is one of the first Bond films, maybe ever, well, maybe not ever, but one of the most prominent in a long while where Bond has something of an inner life in that there are things, there are things he says and does that are, that are not obviously postures. I mean, it, over the last couple of films, you know, we've seen Bond let his guard down a few times, particularly with whichever Bond woman he is associated with as, as a love interest at various points. I'm thinking of uh, Vesper Lynn, for instance, in the Casino Royale remake, which we did an overview on recently. He lets his guard down a bit with her. But there's always that ambiguity because of the character of Bond, whether... You know, whether that's a line he's pitching because he knows it'll work on her or whether that's his genuine sentiment. And there's an extent to which it could be both because, you know, the duality of man and the whole Jungian thing. But there are sequences in this movie, and I'm thinking particularly of a very early on in the movie where Bond is engaged in some weird drinking contest in a Indonesian, I guess, bar where he's, he's trying to take a shot with a scorpion perched on his wrist. And then he takes the shot, the bar cheers, and the, immediate, and the immediate next scene after that is him waking up in the bar the next morning, clearly not, having, clearly not having slept much, if at all. And just that whole sequence of him fumbling around in the bar, it's, it's the closest thing we get to commentary on his part of, of where his life is without, without MI6 to drive him, without MI6 to give him purpose. Yeah, it is interesting. It's um, and it's cool that it's so much so much of the characterization and character development that gets put into Bond in this movie that's so much different than so many of the other Bond movies is done through montage, through visual association, through the way things are shot and the way things are juxtaposed. And it's not really a ton of dialogue, right? There's the famous shot where he fixes his cufflinks after he jumps into the train car, right? Which is very sort of I feel like the most sort of quintessential shot of the movie because it sort of shows. Yeah. Yeah, it shows like him how he deals with things, and is this sort of interesting thing about this movie is that's the way that Bond behaves in this movie. Uh, but yeah, that's a great example of that shot. Um, I think that, uh, gosh, there's there. Oh, I mean, there's the line where he gives the steel suitcase with the euros in it to Money Penny and says, "Put it on red." But that's just sort of that's just sort of silliness. That's not really the same kind of <laughs> level of seriousness. But like you know, when he's running through crowds. Right, and this sort of the way that he's kind of focused on everybody, and the, the sense that he's never been in a rush hour before, and this is the first time he's been exposed to it. Right, because it gives you a sense for how strange his life is, how sort of alienated he is from everybody. Um, yeah, it's it's one of the most deconstructed bonds. I I talked yeah. a lot in in an art, in an article I wrote for the site recently about how we never really see Bond struggle with mundane details. Like he can struggle yeah. when he's trying to overcome a villain or defuse a nuclear bomb, but he can't struggle to like. You know, fold his laundry or get a drink order or yell at the dry cleaners for mixing up his, you know, his shirts and his suit separates. And yet here we see him struggling with a physical fitness test. Like he's jogging on a treadmill with one of those oxygen sensors, I guess, plugged into his mouth. And he's, you know, dealing with rush hour like regular London folk. Yeah. And that's really what the movie is about more than anything else is Bond confronting some vulnerabilities of his own and, and that whole idea of him losing a step, right? Well, there's that great, um, that great revelation when we finally find out, not finally, but when we find out why Bond faked his death or why he decided to, to live with his faked death for a while. And it's, it's not because he was mad at, at M for shooting him. It's that he's mad at M for not believing he could finish the, the, the mission. Right. It's that he, he sort of is so obsessive about his own competence 
and it's clearly that he's covering up. There's a psychological angle to it, right? It's a psychological drama to an extent where he's had this moment of, of vulnerability that's associated with a childhood trauma, and he's managed to come back and, and reenact and master that trauma by becoming the world's greatest secret agent, and he's, he's competent about everything. He's awesome at everything, and then all of a sudden, he sort of is abandoned by his surrogate parent and sort of re-experiences his trauma um, – and then is once again reintroduced to those vulnerabilities that he that are associated with this trauma for him, and has to kind of like go back to the root of it, kind of like dig deep down into it, go back uh, into his past, and and kind of finally like confront the death of his parents through the death of his surrogate yeah. parents. Um, although, although, like what he then actually does is just blow up his house. You know? Yeah, then he just blows up his house. Which I think is what everybody. <laughs> I, I know that if any any of you guys are in therapy, they get to that eventually. It's very high level. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's a long way along the bridge to total freedom. Like that's a you know, I don't know. That's operating double O agent, you know, seven or something like that. And of course, <laughs> and of course, immediately after that, he goes out and finds another surrogate parent and is like, oh, okay, well, back to normal. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, in that sense, I thought that that was something cool about the movie. Um, it made me think a lot about uh, why why do we like Bond? Why are we interested in Bond movies? There's a lot of reasons why we're interested in Bond movies, Bond books. Um, one of them is that, and I, I was reading up a little bit of Ian Fleming commentary on it, is that Bond is sort of a he's, – he's positioned as somewhat of a neutral figure, somewhat of, of – at least from the perspective of the hegemonic discourse under which it is written, a rather kind of plain and unremarkable person who then is in extraordinary circumstances. He's remarkable in terms of his competence, but he is not eccentric or exotic. Right, he's like very kind of, kind of, uh, he's kind of a blank slate to an extent. Right, like it, it's an interesting as as far as like uh, what like B- British fictional crime solvers, right? Like Bond and Hercule Poirot are are perhaps like interesting, like opposite ends of a spectrum of of what eccentricity, right? Yeah, well, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes as well. Um, yeah. yeah, Holmes. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. Right, is probably a better example, right? Because he's actually British and not a kind of. What Belgian, Belgian Fantasia? Yeah, although I mean, Hercule Poirot is the most British Belgian man, right? Like his, his Belgianness is is pure exoticism. If if they hadn't wanted it to be uh, exotic, they would have made him French, but Belgian, right? Like, <laughs> but but the, 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 the I guess the point. <laughs> The exotic mysteries of Belgia. Exotic mysteries of of the Bel- of the Belgi. Um, but yeah, but the thing is that he's he's sort of he's normal. Okay, so what I was getting at was uh, that it, it, when we think about a Pierce Brosnan Bond movie, Bond becomes this superhero figure who restores everything to being okay after it's been disrupted, right? So the the it's a heroic story in which you're kind of satisfied in a culinary emotional sense by the fact that Bond has made everything okay again, and that's kind of the purpose of the story. Did you say culinary emotional sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is kind of borrowing something from Brecht who we quote a lot, but culinary in the sense of emotion as a need that needs to be periodically satisfied. Oh, oh satiated. I see. Okay, great. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like you are hungry for a given emotion. Something provides an avenue for that emotion. Your hunger is satisfied. You have, you have learned nothing, right? Like that's, that's sort of culinary, culinary theater is a, is kind of a, a kind of a, a slur, a, a artistic slur and upturned nose artistic slur of the mid 20th century. Um, and we don't want entertainments that are culinary. They're just there to feed our needs. We want entertainments that will challenge us and grow us as people. But the point is that, um, 
the Bond movies, like and the Bond books, the sort of legacy of Bond prior to the evolution of the film franchise, the stories aren't really about everything going wrong and, and Bond making everything better. Uh, you know, Bond, it's, they're, they're sort of suspense stories and thrill stories that are kind of about Bond's experiences uh, and, and the, the satisfaction that you get from him saving the world. And maybe you guys can dispute this if you want, but my sense of it is that the satisfaction that you get from Bond saving the world is not the chief satisfaction of the story. The chief satisfaction of the story is kind of sharing Bond's perspective on everything that is happening. Um, and in this sense... One thing I liked about this movie, to take about what we're talking about, is that it, it – not just that it ends where it begins, but that Bond's problems, his sort of massive psychological problems that underlie everything that's sort of happening just beneath the surface, they don't go away, right? Like they're not, they're not healed by what happens necessarily. Sure, it's not a romantic comedy, right, where like you know Bond learns to love or something like that. Yeah, like there's a restoration, but it's a restoration to a place that's all, that's that's we're already that's not perfect. There's not a sort of exultant restoration. There's not like a oh you know everything's okay and we're having a quadruple marriage kind of restoration, <laughs> right? Like there's <laughs> like a, a couple full circle. What? Oh, well, you know, finish what you're gonna say, but then I will argue. Oh sure, sure, sure. So I mean, it um, it ma- it makes me think of of a rather kind of uh, kind of a postmodern view of history as kind of like the destruction of the past, and then Bond is somebody who kind of lives with a past that he's constantly kind of destroying and redestroying and reliving and redestroying, uh, and that the most progress that we can make is to sort of like destroy the current act of destruction and move on to the next one, right? He's sort of like pushing through his life uh, towards his death and is sort of self destructive. Uh, kind of creative. Yeah, this is Bond not as a restorer of order, but as a kind of sin eater, right? Or as a kind of like yeah. scapegoat upon whose body the the uh, you know the the sins of the world are visited. Yeah. I think the metaphor of the angel of progress. It might be Benjamin, but I'm not sure who it is. But the sort of the the angel looking backward on the wreckage uh, as he as the hurricane blows the angel away is like the experience of proj- of progress as we watch the sort of world continue to to crumble, but we sort of keep flying with the wind and looking backward at it behind us but anyway jordan uh by all means step in and uh pick up your weighted gloves and and smack me exactly mr stokes do you rebuttal (laughs) (laughs) i i I would i would like to rebut um so i i didn't care for this one all that much although I, i i enjoyed it a heck of a lot but it's still a marked step down from casino royale for me and part of what seemed to be going on uh, that, that I didn't like about it is that they weren't really sure what the villain was supposed to be. Um, one of the things that they said he was is a hacker. Like, he's, he's a super spy. And in the, the big deposition scene, we, we learn that this is meant to be kind of symbolic, that espionage these days is done a lot with satellites and a lot with computers, and that uh, having a dude on the ground a sort of a cultivated British gentleman on the ground who shoots the, uh, the people what need shooting is an old-fashioned way to go about the world, right? So you have that symbolic conflict. And then there's, over the course of the film, there's this titanic regression that goes on, not for the Daniel Craig character, but for the Bond franchise, so that um, everything that Casino Royale did to sort of update the more silly aspects of the franchise and kind of bornify things, this one seemed to consciously undo. Um, and some of it's stuff that began with, uh, with Pierce Brosnan as well. But like by the end of the, the movie, we have a dude M, right? 
We've got the old Aston Martin back. We've got Money Penny, who hasn't been around for a long time. We've got Booby Trap Gadgets, which in the early in the film were like, oh, we don't do that thing anymore, right? Well, now we do, right? We don't have Q Branch doing it. We do it ourselves, but we've still got Booby Trap Gadgets. And then right at the very end, uh, there's, a, there's a rhyme to the portrait gallery scene where they're looking at that, uh, I think it's a Turner painting of the, the warship being kind of like uh, mothballed. And then there's a, a giant painting in M's office of sort of a defiant British ship of the line taking on the assembled navy of what has probably got to be France. But anyway, they're sort of saying like, all right, time to do this old school the way that we always done it. Uh, James Bond is back and he's Sean Connery in like 1975. So I, it, it doesn't seem to me that like, that the trauma that the Danny Craig James Bond is dealing with um, is still going to be an issue because we're kind of retracting to the uh, the cartoon superhero Bond. But I don't know. That was, that was my impression of what the, the broader project of it was. I mean, I I'll, think that it's... Oh, go I'll, ahead. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll weigh in and say that was... That was the that was an uns, uh, that was an unsatisfying touch at the end. Although that do- doesn't change my overall take on the film, which is that it's a better Bond than Casino Royale for reasons which I'll get to in a moment, and thereby one of the better Bond films in in many many years. Uh, I was with you in being unsatisfied that the movie made such a Herculean effort to steer things back into set bond tropes sort of like a checklist and the experience i'd compare it to was the wolverine origins movie that came out a couple of years ago where it felt like the director was the director and the writers were less trying to tell a story and more trying to check off elements of wolverine's origin like oh here's where emma frost shows up and here's where a cyclops shows up and here's where his memories get erased and so on and so forth and it 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 makes it less satisfying the more you know about the character so that i guess the last three or the last two minutes of the movie were were kind of a downer on that note and now that said stokes i don't i don't share your take on it i was eminently satisfied with the movie loved it and recommend it highly but it does your your talk about sort of resetting to the classic bond does raise for me the question of all right well what's the next bond going to be because this one has raised the stakes so substantially it's made it very personal for Bond. There's been a direct attack on MI6. It's questioning the whole point of of MI6's role or MI6's fictional role, which in the world of Bond fiction is to go places, blow things up, and kill people. And it's it's been such a been such a grappling with the existential nature of that trope that what's going to happen in the next movie? It's going to be like, oh, some guy's got a nuclear weapon in some corner of the world, and go and get it, James Bond. Like, well. Okay, like after the stake of this movie, how's that supposed to be satisfying? But the, I mean, the the question, the larger question, is really about the the what the function of human intelligence, right? In the in the uh, in the technological in the technological world, and I think it's, I mean I think it's telling for where the where the movie comes down on the question that after. You know, after um, Q and uh, and Voldemort lead uh, Javier Bardem astray, uh, they don't show up again in the movie. I mean, I kept like I kept expecting to cut back 
to the you know Church Churchill's bunker to the underground headquarters of MI6, where they would be involved somehow in this plot, and they disappear. They disappear entirely. Yeah, I don't know. I thought human intelligence, especially as, as it was brought up in the terms of that hearing, was sort of a lampshade because very little of what Bond does, like Bond as a character, could be described as espionage level intelligence. I mean, when he drops <laughs> that sniper out of a window, if he hadn't happened to find that casino chip in his case that hadn't happened to say the casino's name on it like what would the what would the the post action report of that mission have been like you know uh, agent 007 engages sniper in you know in shanghai uh, sniper killed in ensuing malay uh, no for, no useful intelligence gained uh, end yeah. of the that's a, that's some King's Quest Two level detective work on this. See, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that Bond loses, right? Like he doesn't actually successfully complete what he's trying to accomplish, which is to prevent the assassination of M, right? Uh, that's like pretty much what he's going for, and then M gets assassinated. Um, but um, I, one of the things to comment on, on one of the things that you said, Matt. Um, the scene in the house, I think it's really important that the the kind of infrastructure around Bond isn't there to help him in the final confrontation. And the reason for it is if you think back to the very first scene with the train, right, there's that sort of Jack Bauer, Chloe thing going on where right. there's like the people at home with the computer and there's the people actually doing the action. And, and Bond is like sort of involved in it at first, but it becomes pretty clear that – those people kind of function around Bond, and Bond just sort of does his own thing, completes the mission, um, while everybody else is doing all of their coordination. So he's not entirely rogue, but he's also not really hooked into it. He he's a he's a he's a he's a kind of asset that has a very specific sort of task ahead of him, and he's going to go do his task, and that's kind of a modular thing that can be added into the program or not. Now, when you take it to the end, one one shot that I felt was really important is. Um, uh, Judy, Judy Dench kills a couple of the thugs by exploding a plastic bag full of screws. Right. Right. By like hooking it up to a ceiling fan or something like that, or a lighting fan. A chandelier. chandelier. A chandelier. Like and blowing it up. Shotgun shell, yeah. Now, this is the kind of thing which, I mean, who does things like this? Right? Like, like terrorists and, and like people conducting asymmetrical warfare, like improvised explosive devices and whatnot, right? Like, like bags full of ball bearings are like commonly used in suicide bombing attacks. M- Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin, when he uh, destroyed the nation, uh, this crusader state of Jerusalem, which we all know doesn't exist anymore because Macaulay Culkin <laughs> got to it. He was really effective. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. But it's, um, I feel like, uh, that James Bond is being portrayed very specifically as somebody who is using kind of counterinsurgency tactics and also – yeah. What? Insurgency tactics, right? Yeah, and more encounter. You're right. You're right. In- I-, I misspoke. You're right. Insurgency tactics against Bardem. And I think one of the big points of the movie um, – is it's not a live free or die hard movie, right? Where they're like, oh, there's all this technology and we have to use grit and muscle to fight the technology. It's sort of set up as that, but what it's really revealed is like, no, actually, we're just fighting a new kind of proxy war, right? And, and the, the idea is that Bond sort of becomes relevant again um, because the narrative of him as kind of a proxy warrior during the Cold War is kind of reemerges as a proxy warrior during the sort of media and political saturation era where like M can't do her job because part. Parliament is going to stop her from doing it. Like, I mean, sure. I'm not doing a great job of summing it all up, but like, 
for me, the, the political message of the movie is a really kind of daring one that I have not heard articulated a lot by people who are credible, right? Which is that, like, governments need to be in the terrorism business, right? Yeah. Like, uh, well, Yeah, um, I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's not a live for your die hard movie. It's a, it's a Red Dawn movie, right? Only yeah. in Scotland. So it's actually Red Dawn. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's not just that he's using insurgency tactics, right? He's using it against a bunch of commandos who come in on a helicopter to blow up a house where they think a high-profile uh, target who runs some kind of spy network is holed up. So yeah. it's, um, it's, it's kind of trippy, right, to realize that you saw the trailer for Zero Dark Thirty, and then this is how the movie ends. Yeah, yeah. You, make, you made the point that I wanted to make, bring up, which is that like the, the symbology of a helicopter and that sort of attack gunship kind of thing is really important. I mean, like that's the, the hegemon, the hegemonic power uses that, right? Viet, the, in the Vietnam War, the United States was the one that was hosing down houses with machine gun fire while the insurgents were fighting back using right, and uh, like, nails. Sure. And also oh, like the, the metaphorical uh, nails, you know what I mean? He- helicopter shot in, in Apocalypse Now, right? Like, which is mm-hmm. kind of like inexorably linked to the discourse of, of you know, the Vietnam War. And, and, and there's that yeah, shot. The loudspeakers. Oh, yeah. The, the exactly. Yeah, the loudspeakers. Right, right. And the, but there's the shot of the helicopters in the movie over Javier Bardem's city with the Union Jack emblazoned on them, right? Like hovering, like, I'm not alone. I have these helicopters, right? Um, so it's, it is showing. And that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, this is just coming to me. So, so forgive me if it's, it's half formed, but like, it, the helicopters, not planes, right? This isn't like Top Gun. It's not, it's sort of not sexy in, in a way that like, uh, films can fetishize military hardware. Uh, well, well, helicopters are anti personnel or I guess like anti ground craft, uh, yeah. support troops. Like a, a plane has to get from point A to point B pretty quickly, but a helicopter can just loom. Right, right, right. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, but it was interesting because it was it was basically say, it's also I mean I heard one person say that Javier Bardem's blonde hair was 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 it an accidental or specific reference to Julian Assange, right? Who has a very similar sort of pale haircut, right? So and this let's, is, this, let's let's talk a little about that because that that's a point I wanted to get into as well. The the you you mentioned the politics of the movie Pete, and so let's talk about the politics of the villain in particular. Yeah. So it it is I th- I think there's a pretty obvious common well. It's meant to tie into the same themes that WikiLeaks and Anonymous tie into, even if it's not referencing them specifically, because it's made very clear that uh, Javier Bardem's character, Raul Silva, he's not an organization. He's a guy. He's a guy with an agenda. And I think we can contrast it to, say, the very, like, populism as villainy trope that was used in The Dark Knight Rises, which also came out this summer, in that... I, I don't. It, well, it's definitely not going for the populist aspect for one thing. Uh, if only because Javier Bardem never takes to a soccer stadium and says, "I'm giving London back to the people." <laughs> it was a very good bane. <laughs> Thank you. It, it's it's not hard to do. Uh, so I mean, there's there's not that populism aspect, but it. So even if it's not specifically calling out WikiLeaks and Anonymous, it's meant to tie into the same fears that the institutions that fear WikiLeaks and Anonymous also suffer. Namely, that our enemies are in the shadows, this term comes up several times, that they can appear from anywhere, that they can cause chaos by airing our secrets on places like YouTube, and that there's nothing we can do to stop them. Right. So, like, that, that's, a, that's a fear for a very particular set of 
organizations and people and institutions. And I mean, it's, you know, it's not the sort of thing that most of us have cause to be afraid of the way we would have cause to be afraid of like, you know, Russian terrorists with nuclear devices in our, in our cities and only Jack Bauer can save us. So it's a, it's a very, it's a very particular institutional fear that he plays on. I mean, one of the interesting things about that narrative, oh, go ahead, go ahead. What are you saying? I was just going to say that I think tying into that is the notion that, uh, there's a personal grievance that this guy has, right? right? Exactly. And if you're one of those organizations, it's like, you can't allow this stuff, this technology to be out there, because what if there's just one crazy dude who uh, has an axe to grind and doesn't really this stuff can go wrong? Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and I think what, um, to add to it, the, the sort of stock narrative around these kinds of asymmetrical battles is that, you know, the government is the big bad guy, right? And that the sort of insurgent people who – and specifically like the, the sort of hacktivists and the, the kind of um, – like kind of fringe people who are independent, right? These like non-state actors uh, who are like, as long as you don't brand them as sort of terrorists, qua terrorists, um, are are kind of like uh, are, are if even if they themselves are not good, the government's institutions are kind of decadent and and they don't really serve a purpose, uh, and that this is sort of the future that's coming. And I think that's referenced a couple of times in the movie where Q talks about how he can do all this stuff with the laptop and he's so much more powerful than Bond is, and Javier Bardem's like, oh, you can be your own secret agent. And one of the interesting things about the movie is that um, the question that rises that I think is interesting uh, is why be James Bond in a world like this? Like, what is the like? Why does the UK continue to need to exist? What benefit and purpose does it serve? And how can you articulate these things without looking ridiculous? And I'm not saying that there is no benefit to the UK. I mean, I personally think the country is a pretty awesome thing, and it's 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 great that it exists. That's wonderful. I mean, it has a series of historical sins and whatnot, but who doesn't? You know, let he without sin cast the first cannonball at the native village. Um, but um. Sorry, that was a little darker than I meant for it to be. But, um, <laughs> but the, the main thing is that the interesting thing – and I think that the movie really focuses not on the things about James Bond that are awesome, but the things about James Bond that are interesting. And one of the interesting things about James Bond is why is he so dedicated to England, right? Uh, there's that wonderful scene from the, uh, the, the psychological test where they ask him what his country is, and he says England, right? And then we find out he's from Scotland, right? Uh, and that not only is he from Scotland, but he lives with, like, sort of, you know, kind of like, uh, like sort of rugged, gun-toting, like, isolation. Yeah, sure, like Scottish survivalist, you know what I mean? Not like... Uh... He's not at the Edinburgh, Fr- Edinburgh Fringe Festival, like watching people come up from the Royal Shakespeare Company or whatever. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, how awesome! How awesome would that have been, right? It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll take you to where they least expect. <laughs> backstage at an experimental play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. The theater? Are you kidding? There's no way that they get all those guys to go to the theater. <laughs> They're all men, in like the, like the sort of thirty to forty demographic. Gonna... Um, but no, the, the point being that that James Bond, part of James Bond's character as an individual, is he has a really, really strong commitment to his country, right? And that it's not really a kind of rah-rah jingoistic commitment. It's kind of a bit of a mysterious commitment that has to do with things that have happened to him in the past, I guess. But that also. I mean, just from sort of a, a theatrical perspective, the sort of the act of assuming this commitment seems to do a degree precede a psychological justification for it happening, right? Like James Bond is in Her Majesty's Secret Service, and any sort of psychological explanation of that is sort of subsequent to it, 
right? Uh, and, yeah, uh, well, that's that's what I was thinking actually when you asked your question initially was like, why, why be England and why be James Bond? It, it, it's because we already have them. You know, they're here. <laughs> you know, right? Like James Bond already is here, and even in this, you know, uh, this post-colonial. Uh, you know, post uh, post empire world, right? Like he's here. You know, he he. Uh... The, the movie would be a lot less exciting if the movies all end with you know James Bond is already here, <laughs> rather than James. Bond. <laughs> yeah, as 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 Derrida would say, James Bond has always already returned. In <laughs> yeah, well, this is this is something we talked about on the Olympics podcast, where we talked about the London Olympics huge opening spectacular and. Daniel Craig's appearance with the Queen and sort of how James Bond is, you know, much like the John Bull character of prior centuries, he's now the face of the British Empire or what's left of it at this stage. So, yes, we can psychoanalyze it and say, oh, you know, James Bond, having been orphaned at a young age, his surrogate parents are now his superior officers and he rebels against them in a way an adolescent rebels against parents, but ultimately comes back to them and seeks their approval, yada, yada, yada. And that makes for good storytelling. But ultimately, it doesn't really need to be justified because so long as there's an empire, there's a James Bond. Like, that just has to be. But I still think that the way that we say this, um, the way that we're framing it in our discourse, there's a certain kind of, like, dissatisfaction and kind of skepticism and kind of, like, eye-rolling, right? It's like, well, there's got to be in England. It's already there, right? Like, um, you know. Well, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's tough for us because, well, I mean, we're not British, that's right. that's part of the interesting thing about this is that you know as much as James Bond is a global franchise and a worldwide 20th century icon it's very much a british film series and it's it's always had that sort of pride of place i mean you know the the bond movies always debut in england about at least a week or a couple of days before they debut anywhere else in the world they're you know they're filmed very much they're very much ha- they very much have an English character to them uh, to the to the extent that I, I had I had a hard time with a couple lines of dialogue. Maybe it had to do with the theater I was seeing it in, but like I I needed a second to process just because the accents are particularly thick. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I'm thinking about that scene where James Bond is standing on the rooftop and he's looking out over the the flags, the UK flags that are flying from all the buildings. Yeah, and, and in, in the yeah. back is the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben and whatnot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I guess I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess the the question then is, um, you know, he if if it is if he is patriotic because he is from England. Uh, first of all, like, is it really? I mean, we could say is a characteristic of of English people to be that patriotic. But but even stepping he's aside also, from that, he's also not. I mean, he's we said this, but he's not from England, right? No, he's from Scotland. But and yeah, but there's there's there. I still think that there's something compelling that I can't quite put my finger on about uh, James Bond's commitment to this this country this nation state which of course i mean it's very possible that these sorts of nation states are obsolete and in fact kind of have already you know they have already begun to dissolve or already have dissolved and exist mostly as kind of discursive kinds of things but like you know that really it's the multinational corporations that are running things and and england happens to be a novel way of framing the regulations and laws that govern some of those this is this is like this is exactly what we talk about on the tft podcast you should come on sometime because this is exactly it if I'm not comfortable looking at those young girls, can I still come on the podcast? <laughs> you can you can scotch tape Danny Craig's head over all of their bodies. 
I do that anyway. Just and, and whenever, whenever I get a new magazine, just put in Daniel Craig's. Head so speaking, so speaking of weird homoeroticism. Oh yeah, we got to talk about that stuff. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I'll, 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 I'll throw in, I'll throw in my take on it, which was that this film, more than any film save Casino Royale, and I think even a little more than that was conscious of the tropes of the Bond films and evoke them in a very meta way. And I think, you know, there's the Aston Martin, there's Money Penny returning, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the the sort of tipping point of that was the the traditionally homoerotic relationship that Bond has with the the male villainous mastermind. There's always a sort of sense of, you know, them eyeing each other and, you know, sizing each other up and, you know, seeing each other shirtless and sweaty at various points. And of course, that's played with explicitly here. Do you think that's what they were going for, or something? And else? also, right, like cutting cutting his balls in half with a laser, right? Wasn't wasn't that one? <laughs> the, the, like the edging, the edging yeah. between his legs when he's tied to that chair was, I don't know, an example of that. I, I, I feel like it's pretty clear that Sam Mendes kind of likes octopusy, or you know, like there's <laughs> there's just something about that kind of like you know the, the most extreme extravagances of the Bond franchise that he just seems to want to play with as a filmmaker and. And he kind of gets permission to do because he's Sam Mendes. I, that was what I was thinking when I like when Javier Bardem was really sneering and like the faces that he was making. And I mean, I didn't think about this too because I have uh, repressed a lot of the homoeroticism in the other Bond movies. Thinking and would would like many internet commenters react with anger rather than consider that you're probably correct. No, but I know what you mean. Um, no, it gets edited out of a lot of the TBS uh, marathons, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think that I definitely think that it is very it's very self-conscious. You're you're totally right. And uh, and I think that it is whereas Casino Royale kind of wanted to either apologize for or kind of like kind of step away from and, and recollect or almost almost translate. So Casino Royale was kind of assuming that a lot of those things were products of their times and were kind of dated and wanted to translate them into a contemporary film with the assumption that they wouldn't exist, right? Like that, that we wouldn't have the sort of like dragon lady with the black lipstick and the backless dress with the Beretta strapped to her thigh, right? Like, that, <laughs> like we sort of assume <laughs> that's kind of like, that's a little gauche right now. So we're not going to sure. put that in the new Bond franchise. This movie's like... No, that's what was interesting about the other movies. <laughs> right. Basically, the man from Uncle with no jokes. Yeah, right? we come a long way from the moment in Casino Royale when a bartender asks James Bond, uh, "Would you like a martini shaken or stirred?" And James Bond responds, "Does it look like a give a damn?" Well, in this movie, right. like if you ask him the same question, he clearly will give a damn. You know? Oh yeah, totally. Um, yeah, because I think his because James Bond's specific drink order is even more elaborate than shaken, not stirred. And I think in this movie they actually make it. Like they, there's a lingering shot of his martini, and it's in a very deep glass, and it's got the lemon peel, right? And it's it's like four drinks, right? And it's like, <laughs> it's like drink. I want it to be ice cold. I want it to be perfectly prepared. And she shakes it. I think one of the things about his perfect drink is that you have to shake it for a long time until it's absolutely ice cold. And so he watches her shake it until it gets to that point. He goes perfect, right? Uh, He's like, I want one drink, and I hate things that aren't well made. But that's from the that's from the books. But um, yeah, geez. I know, Jordan, I interrupted you again. I've been interrupting you right this No, time. no, no, that's all right. <laughs> I, I knew the risks when I, when I signed <laughs> Rather, it's like, make the, make the bloody joke, damn it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, you know, the, the, the whole gay panic thing was, um, I feel like there's sort of a, a developing trend that 
films will still make gay panic jokes where some secondary character comes on to the primary protagonist. And, like, there's this interesting double speak to them now because you could totally look at that scene and be like oh my god it's so creepy the villain is gay um and there's probably a, a fair amount of people who will watch the movie and do that but then you can also watch it and like bond is pretty much as into that flirtation as he was into any of the other flirtations that he's been having with the women you know <laughs> right, like right, right. <laughs> his attitude is basically like yes bring it on let's do this go time is now um <laughs> Which, which like which uh, salvages the scene a little bit. Still, it was a it was a weird moment. Well, I think that was the interesting part of the scene. It, well, uh, from the sort of um, plot perspective, right, is that he, he, the reason Javier Bardem is doing it, other than just because he's getting his rocks off, is uh, because he wants to kind of he, he thinks that Bond isn't prepared for this kind of psychological manipulation, <laughs> right? That's kind of his his like soft core porn justification for what he's doing. Is like yeah, this level of interrogation will totally break you. Um, but uh, and then, but he's like, you know, what makes you think I haven't had like homosexual? Experience? experiences um and that's sort of the the trump card i guess against it um which is kind of funny and i, I, thought, I thought it was interesting because yeah, as, um, as a character says on downton abbey in the uh, as yet unaired in the u.s third series um it, you know if i pitched a fit every time a boy tried to kiss me at eaton i wouldn't have lasted a week yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, they're basically Kinseying the argument, right? They're being like, I know you think that most fictional characters are uniformly heterosexual, but in fact, we exist on a spectrum, and we just don't talk about it in public. <laughs> right. yeah. Like, the assumption is that, like, Garfield is kind of bi, but, like, he's not allowed to ide- self-identify. <laughs> <laughs> You heard it here first right, on the only thing you get podcast. Breaking news. I <laughs> hate Mondays. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so oh, I'm going to take this a little bit of a tangent here um, with regard to this to this gay thing that we're talking about. Um, because the, the thought occurred to me. <laughs> Sorry, the gay thing that we're going to talk Yes, the gay about. thing that we're talking about. Okay, okay so just for a moment, the thought, the thought occurred to me a moment. Like, imagine a gay James Bond. Would it ever fly? Well, let's talk about that, but probably not, right? Um, and, but that reminded... Oh, let's talk about that, right? But that reminded me of another sort of James Bond identity rumor that came up recently, which was that um, what's his name, Idris Elba, the guy who plays Omar in The Wire, right? Like, no, so he was it, it rumored at some Stringer. point. He plays Stringer. Uh, sorry, Stringer. Um, he we was rumored um, at some point to uh, to be in consideration for a future James Bond, and then there was this whole uproar, of course, and it's like, can James Bond be black? James Bond can't be black. Blah 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 blah. This and that. So that all that is to say, like, like you know, how far can we push the identity of James Bond for it to still be James Bond? It's interesting. In many ways, James Bond is similar in this particular sense to Doctor Who, where like you have this character persisting over time that you have various actors being. And I always like to say, uh, with slim justification, that this is a particularly British thing because they've got they've still got the nobility over there. And you, you are the Baron Swansea or whatever. Maybe you're the 24th one, maybe you're the 25th one, but you're still the Baron. So that, like, yeah, you could have a black James Bond. It's, it's more of a, a hereditary office than it is a, a biological organism. Yeah. yeah, and to add to the Doctor Who comparison, the most, the most pertinent comparison is probably to Captain Jack in Torchwood, right, who is like a major character in a Doctor Who se- season or series and then becomes the star of his own spinoff of Doctor Who, who is openly bisexual. Uh, and, but the thing is that, that in, in the UK they have the watershed, right, which is uh, you know, after 9 o'clock – 
Um, you can show things that are racy and sexual, but before nine o'clock, you're really not supposed to. Um, but the things that they show on TV after nine o'clock are uh, pretty racy and sexual sometimes. Um, and, and, um, you know, including like dudes making out, you know, on like, you know, public, publicly funded television kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, in Britain, I could totally see – it seems more likely because of – just because of precedent and because of the way that these media properties have to kind of be divided. Like there's still enough of political energy in Britain to kind of keep a, a niche for, for family entertainment that is separate from all this. But it seems like it would be totally feasible for like a hard R Bond movie for there to be like another a gay 007 agent who like has kind of a thing with James Bond that might have happened. You know what I mean? Like, um, like that you could do. You could you sort of locate it in a separate character, and that character only exists in properties that are sort of cleared for an adult audience. Sure. Right? Um, because, you know, it's – because the thing is you can't just have James Bond be queer eye for the straight guy gay. Right? Like you can't have James Bond – because like if James Bond is gay, he has to have sex with men. That's like, the interesting thing. You know, I was thinking yeah. I have no problem with uh, with imagining a gay James Bond character going over um, as an action hero. But where yeah. where this movie that I'm picturing in my mind quickly becomes unsellable is you have to have the Bond boy, right? Who's yeah. this exotic, slinky little n- number lounging poolside in a in a speedo, who's there like primarily to be leered at by the audience, and then sort of coyly bedded off screen by Bond. Um, and, and that I just, I, like, I don't think people would, uh, well, some people would buy tickets for that avidly, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I don't imagine that a, a major studio yeah, would think. There would, there, would, there would need to be enough of a sea change in global, and by global I mean American, because we're the primary audience for these things. Mm. There would need to be enough of a sea change in American perceptions of acceptable voyeuristic sexuality that that would need to that would need to start happening in other films before it happened in a Bond film. Like I don't I don't think I don't think the Bond series would would break ground in in homosexual voyeurism uh, if if that's something to break ground gr- in. Ground ground's been broken already, guys. Two words: Magic Mike. That was a big fucking deal. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty well, years from now, I, we're gonna look back. You know, when the gay James Bond comes up, we're like, oh, started with Magic Mike. <laughs> <laughs> when Channing Tatum is playing James Bond, and everyone's like, <laughs> an American. We oh God, we long for the days of Idris Elba. <laughs> I still think it's more about. Uh, I think it's more still about audience segmentation, like than yeah. at the moment than it is about like whether it's right or, or people are okay with it. Adults are okay with it or not, right? Because, but I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I don't think that you would have people um, demanding their money back in the theater. But uh, people would just be sort of like, this isn't what I go to movies for, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I will say, this movie lingered, I felt like this movie, and kind of the Danny Craig Bonds in general, linger over Danny Craig's form as much or more than they linger over the the female forms. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I think Daniel Craig's in better shape than a lot of prior Bonds. I mean, Pierce Brosnan, Pierce Brosnan was always, you know, fit but kind of kind of on the on the slender side, whereas Danny Craig's built like a footballer. Well, yeah. Pierce Brosnan, the Pierce Brosnan familiar shot is like him under satin sheets, sort of like like leaning on the pillow and like the very <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that is him. Shirtless shot. He doesn't have to be shirtless; he just has to be ensconced uh, with various. Yeah. Fo- fabrics yeah, uh, you could have you could have a smoking jacket on under those sheets <laughs> <laughs> um but i mean i think that that's interesting i think do you think it's um 
do you think that Bond sees himself? And so if we if we translate Bond into the modern day, right? Because certainly workout culture was not a thing when Bond, to the same degree that it is now, uh, when when uh, the Bond novels were being written and when uh, the first Bond movies were happening. Um, since Bond is so kind of has such an addictive personality and is kind of uh, uh, has these sort of like relationships with these sort of hedonistic pursuits and these sorts of ideas of perfectionism, like I would totally believe that Bond would fetishize his own body and like want to check out his six pack, right? Like that that's kind of something that seems in character for James Bond if you translate him to the, to the contemporary. Like the question, what I'm raising a question is. Do they show, from the perspective of James Bond, if you see these movies as kind of from the general point of view of James Bond on things, do they show James Bond shirtless because James Bond likes James Bond shirtless? Or are they showing James Bond shirtless because women or men attracted to men uh, want to see James Bond shirtless? Hmm. You know what I mean? Because there's different kinds of homoeroticism, right? There's the homoeroticism of kind of male-on-male sexuality, and there's the homoeroticism of self-exploration. Right, which is, uh, I mean, they're not utterly distinct, but they're they're separate. They are they have separate roles and functions that can happen side by side. It's uh, tough though because I'm not sure that Bond movies in general are from James Bond's point of view in that way. Like I'm, as we were sort of getting at before, that so much of the the classic Bond, in, in any case, um, you're not sure about how much of what he's talking about is a pose, um, and the the various shots of the women, like the camera lingers over them so that you and the audience are supposed to be there, sort of going like ah and drooling, right? But yeah. then you cut to James Bond, and he sort of like looks a little bit amused and maybe like raises an eyebrow, which could be that he's just keeping it inside or that he's really honestly not impressed. And I think that one of the things that's interesting about like what he really cares about so much is that drink, and that's partially because like no one in the audience can taste it, so that's really for him. But like yeah. <laughs> the various things that he looks at he never seems as impressed and like the villain scheme which we may think like oh my goodness that's frightening or oh my goodness that's actually quite clever bond is always like eh, you know kind of heard it before um so whether whether bond is impressed with his own muscularity sort of has to run through that same uh that same randomizer or something i don't know so so is that similar to so so bond gives up a great deal in his life and kind of kind of you know uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, uh, well, he, he sort of gives up his own body. He damages his own. He he um, he. Something the flesh, whatever it is. He like he. It's like he sort of flagellates himself. He what? Mortification of the flesh. Mortificates. He mortificates. He mortifies himself. He mortifies his own flesh on behalf of the United Kingdom by going out there and doing these secret agent things, right? Like he's totally committed to this stuff to the point where he kind of like destroys himself to do it. Is there a degree to which Bond? kind of by analogy or even sort of as the artistic communication is happening when bond looks at a really hot woman and bond has sex with a really hot woman and we all watch it that like bond is no more capable of really enjoying that the function by which bond is incapable of enjoying that is the same one by which he can't have a weekend because he is a public servant right like like he as a film symbol uh, is a is a sim is a sort of in, institutional public servant more, more who like kind a, of gives up more like a pubic servant. <laughs> nice, well, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you know well, what I mean. That, makes, I do. That, he makes that very explicit in uh, Thunderball, actually, where oh. 
where there's one of the bad Bond girls, uh, Fiona Volpe, and, you know, in, in the course of sleeping with many women, he sleeps with her, but only to, you know, get some intel out of her. But really, it turns out she's been on to him the entire time, and she has armed goons come in after they're done going at it, you know, hold him up at gunpoint. And, and Connery has, you know, has a line where he says, oh, you think I took any pleasure from what I did? That was for Queen and Country. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's doing it for you. Like that's why Bond is doing it. He's doing it so that we can watch it and right. appreciate. Well, at, at least, at least when he sleeps with the bad Bond girls, I think, I think we can presume that oh, he's just doing this to you know to disarm their suspicions of him. Like oh, he's not really a secret agent. He's just some international playboy cad looking for some strange. Oh, okay, I can let my guard down. Oh, whoops, <laughs> he's got a gun. <laughs> Yeah. I'll have some my strange shaken not stirred. <laughs> oh dear. I, um, I what I was thinking was was of course of Triple X, but but never mind. <laughs> well trick you can talk about Triple X if you want. He's not as good of a secret agent as Bond. He gets captured so many times. Yeah. Bond gets captured a lot. Actually, can I um I wanted to bring something up about uh to derail the conversation totally. Um, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. We can do two train derailments. That's part of the <laughs> yeah, that's that's my job. I wanted to go back to the argument about whether this is a better Bond or Casino Royale is a better Bond. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I've never gotten to make my case for Casino Royale on this podcast, so I want to make that and then let Perich uh, argue against me. I think that the, the reason that Casino Royale is maybe, may in fact, the best of all Bond movies is that the, the stakes are recognizably low. That, like, what Bond needs to do is stop this guy from winning this poker hand because it's in the British government's interest that he not have a lot of money. And Bond is just sort of told that. He's like, all right, this is your mission, right? You need to do this one very specific thing. It's kind of a trivial thing, but you have to do it. And it doesn't matter if you end up having to kill people to do it. You just make this thing happen. And I really like that notion of the uh, the double O agent as a sort of like a trump card that you throw into little bits of the spy game that simply have to go right. They're, they're like a, a force point, basically, um, in, in the Star Wars role-playing game that like you, you apply to the really important dice rolls. Um, and I just found that so much more compelling than the classic Bond plot, where the villain is trying to end the world somehow. And Bond has to, like, first uncover this improbable plan, then fail to stop it, like, five or six times, and then finally stop it at the end. Um, Like, watching Casino Royale, I realized why the James Bond franchise had never quite worked for me before. And I was so excited that, like, now Bond was just going to be sort of doing espionage tasks, Um, like... Not spying exactly. Someone else did the spying. But then, like, when you need to make something happen out in the field, you call in Bond. But they've, they've gone away from that in all of the successive movies, and it seems like they have no interest in returning to it. See, that's okay. interesting. Yeah, go ahead, John. So to, to address that, I get that point, and I see the, I see the value of it. I... I think Casino Royale suffers a little by comparison, and only a little, just because the entire sequence from, and spoiler alert for Casino Royale, the entire sequence from when the main villain gets shot to when Bond starts recuperating on that estate, the pacing suffers a little. And considering that's the last third of the movie, that's a, that's a pretty critical point for the, the, not just the action pacing, but the narrative through line to break down. 
Like, you kind of forget the point of, like, oh, okay, like, the movie's still rolling, but Bond seems to have everything, so what exactly are we doing here? Whereas Skyfall, for, you know, the relative merits of its stakes, and and we talked about this at the top of the podcast, and while I, while I love this, I, I'm not, I can't quite conceive what they're going to do to top it. For the, for the relative, I guess, inflation of its stakes is a much better paced, both in terms of narrative and in terms of action set pieces, much better paced film, I think, than Casino Royale was. Like, there's the, the, the stakes are, the stakes are a little clearer. They evolve more organically. Like, there, there are points at Casino Royale where, as, as fun a movie as it is, and I, I really do like it as a Bond movie, you're just asking yourself, wait, why isn't Bond just shooting more people right now? Like, what, why, why are we sitting at this card game? Whereas here, it's very, cl- it's very clear, even if, obviously, you know, later interrogation could poke holes in it. For instance, you know, okay, once they've gotten to the Scottish castle, why can't they have just some SAS guys waiting in the hills? Like, why does it have to be just the three of them for the entire thing? But that's another point. It's another point entirely. Um, I, I, felt, I felt that Skyfall worked better as a narrative and as an entertaining blockbuster than Casino Royale did. So that's why I would put it just above it, but only just. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely think that um, I, I think Casino Royale had a superior plot to Skyfall. That Skyfall, I, I thought, that, I mean, I loved Skyfall, but I thought that the way that they did the whole let's go to the house and defend it from Javier Bardem felt a little bit bad boys too. You know what I mean? Like it felt a little bit like, hey, let's invade Cuba. Like let's <laughs> let's hack on this this extraordinary this extraordinary piece of business to this movie that's basically over. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For, fortunately, it it uh, you know did not go all the way to the cadaver boobs moment that you yeah. know Bad Boys Two went to. Yeah, spoiler alert, man! Come oh, on. Sorry. Spoiler yeah, alert. Spoiler alert for cadaver boobs not being in Skyfall. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also, also because this was a Sam Mendes movie, instead of loving shots of Navy SEALs as you have in a Michael Bay movie, you have loving shots of the foggy, mossy Scottish Highlands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that man, that man. The only grassy knolls he wants have actual grass on actual knolls. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, Jordan, can I can I just ask why? why it's compelling that Bond is useless in Casino Royale. I mean, I think that that may be because you're perverse. <laughs> it's, it's not that he's useless, though, because he has a, a very important function. It's sort of... Um, how to put this? It, it gives lie to the kind of the kind of grandiose fantasy of of some of the other Bond movies, right? And that if it, that gets tiring to you, I understand. You know, I understand why. I guess it's kind of refreshing somehow. I will say that although um, this is sort of neither here nor there, it's much closer to the way that Bond is in a lot of the the books, um, and especially the short stories, because there's also a lot of Bond short stories. He will sometimes be like going in to kill someone that he doesn't properly know who they are. Uh, it's just like part of the way that double O agents work is that they're the only people who are allowed to kill for the uh, the British intelligence. So when a shot needs to be made, they like find the nearest double O agent and bring them in and put the gun in their hands and say like a car will be driving by this window. You're going to pull the trigger. Um, and like I, you know, just saying like, oh well, it's true to the books, right? Like, what more trivial reason could there be to like a thing? But there's something compelling about that um, that narrative, and I think it has to do with the way that Bond is always kind of a um, a body moving in space. 
Uh, earlier, there was this talk about human intelligence, and someone objected and said, like, well, there's nothing that Bond does that's really espionage-level intelligence. And I was thinking, like, there's nothing that's really human-level intelligence. Like, he's basically a, a mobile, right, um, that gets put into motion by his government saying, go. And yeah, he's, he's, goes, a, he's a weapons platform. Yeah, yeah, right. And and again, he has sort of like carte blanche to do whatever he needs to do to make that task happen. And I think that's kind of cool too. Like like okay, you need me to to do this thing. Well, I will break into this building and throw this guy off of it. Um even though the people back home might sort of put their head in their hands and be like, "Oh, Bond, you were supposed to question him." But, you know, he he just sort of like goes Rambo. But then the intelligence agency is sort of putting that uh, that weapons platform online occasionally, you know? And I, for some reason, like, that, that separation between the very active body of what Bond is and his, his, the fact that he doesn't really care about the broader mission, because it's not his job to care about it, right? He trusts that they have a plan with this. Uh-huh. And then he just, like, you know, go, 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 beat this guy at poker, uh, kill these guys who are getting in my way just because they're getting in my way, um, is, is compelling for some reason That's to me. Because, that, it, because yeah. it sort of allegorizes in, in what, bureaucratic terms, a kind of Cartesian dualism between body yes, and mind. exactly. That, that's what it is. I, the, 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 like, the superhero bond is too uh, monophysite, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I was definitely say that, like, if, if, and also this goes for the whole cultural thing, too, the sort of bond is kind of a post-colonial symbol of empire where he's the normal one and all of the oriental monarchs he comes across or whatever are the strange ones, right? Like the people in their various islands and secret bases and whatnot um if the stories are kind of about bond being the simple blunt instrument and things happening around him then putting him in a situation in which things are happening around him in kind of like an elegant and integrated way uh, that there's a there's a beauty to that right like like to the how is it that you set up the wheels spinning around bond uh and and where is bond's place amidst the spinning wheels if the spinning wheels are just the whole world and his place in the middle of it is fix it then there's a little bit less beauty there than like the idea that he has a very specific role he's supposed to play and then there are tensions about what that role is and why he's playing it or why he isn't playing it um the circumstances around him can be a, a source of aesthetic value um yeah, which they which they kind of aren't in say like tomorrow never dies, right? Um, okay, so final question, guys: Why does he run across the frozen pond when it becomes clear in successive shots that not ten yards to his right is a uh, you know bluff that he could sort of run across? Uh, why does he smoke? Why does he smoke six packs of cigarettes a day? <laughs> you know, like why? Why does he drink like a fish? You know, like why? Why does he do any of the things that he does? I, just, I mean, of the of the plot holes. I mean, right? Like someone brought up a plot hole before. Like of the plot yeah. holes, like that one seemed uh, that one seemed very interesting to me. Now, what is he looking? Why is he? Remind me what he's looking at because he's. I remember it's very urgent for him to get across that ice, right? Like, is it because well, he sees es- that he's escaped from the house and he's he's running to to M and the Scottish gamekeeper and, and the um, uh, let's just call him Hagrid and the 
<laughs> right. And like, I guess it's the most direct, direct route. He doesn't want to take a, a detour 10 yards out the way to his right. But like one, he's in extremely close proximity to, to Javier Bardem, uh, who's, you know, bioluminescent, uh, blonde dye job, right? Ought to be like glowing uh, in the, the loamy uh, Scottish dusk. Uh, right. And it's a freaking, I mean, has he not seen, uh, the dark Knight rises? (laughs) Well, well, one, no. And two, keep in mind, this is his childhood home. So he was probably told many times in explicit terms, not to run across the ice until we were sure was at least six inches deep. And then, you know, having come back, it's like, you know what? Screw what my parents said. I'm going to run across the ice. I'm going to get this out of the way. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I totally totally buy it. To his credit, like, the ice would have been fine, save for Javier Bardem firing uh, a gun at it. He fired the gun at it. Yeah, eventually, but oh, eventually, he, he's yeah, alerted yeah. to the he's alerted to the presence of Javier Bardem via uh, you know gunfire. Right, and I, I have to say, I love I love Bardem's reaction to Bond's gambit to escape from that. Is like, well, you think you've got me? I'm going to shoot holes in the ice and drown us both. And and Bardem's reaction being like, whatever, man, and just keep <laughs> that is that is I think priceless. Guys, if we're talking about plot holes associated with the ice. What we really should be talking about is why James Bond is not shivering uncontrollably to the point where he can't function after yeah. swimming out of that, right? There was some point where, you know, he, he comes back, you know, he throws a knife into Javier Bardem's back, and, and he's dripping wet there, and, uh, you know, and M is asking, you know, what took you so long? And, and it's like, well, I guess what took him so long was they had to recover from hypothermia. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, like like overcome the grand mal type seizure that he was, you know, undergoing as he like you know walked zombie style up to the. Uh, right. you know, I mean, I mean to, to call back to another Batman movie, we saw Batman Begins, right? Bruce Bruce Wayne falls to the ice and that, and he's shivering like a like a crazy uh, man after that. And he had ninja sure. training. <laughs> he warmed himself off in the flaming remains of his childhood home, then came back. Uh-huh, okay. uh, uh, ethanol has a freezing point of negative 114 <laughs> Celsius. So, given that James Bond blood is mostly vodka at this point, <laughs> it's actually going to be quite fine. <laughs> and maybe with that, we leave the overthinking it podcast. So, if you want to join the conversation about the latest Bond movie or anything that we talked about, uh, you can call us at 203 285 6401, the impossible to acronym in a way that's not offensive to somebody. 203 285 6401, or email podcast You can also join the conversation in the comments on the show notes. Uh, we'll be back next week. <laughs> the overthinking it podcast will return. The Overthinking It podcast has has always already returned uh, next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably doesn't deserve.